Lakeshore Museum Center's next installment of Muskegon History and Beyond, our monthly podcast. So I'm Wendy Van Work. I'm the program manager here at Michigan's Heritage Park, and joining me today is Gwen Miller, assistant program manager at Michigan's Heritage Park. So for this month, we thought it would be a little fun to talk about alcohol. Here in the West Michigan area, we've really seen a boom in the craft brewing and distilling market. So we thought we would take a look back and see how alcohol played a role in a number of the sites here at the park. So we're gonna be discussing these things chronologically and we'll kind of talk about one or two spirits per site. But remember that there would have been quite a bit of overlap as far as what was available and what people were looking for. So let's get started. Um, Wendy, a lot of people always ask about the role of alcohol in the fur trade. Um, what spirits were really being traded? So during the French era, brandy was really the most popular alcohol that they were trading. And what brandy is, it's, it's just a distillation of any fruit-based spirit. So usually it was wine, but they would also have apple brandy and other varieties. And then when the British took over the fur trade, that then switched to rum as the spirit that was most popular to trade. So what about the rum? Or as my friend Jack Sparrow would say, why is the rum gone? Why rum? <laughs> So the British had quite a few colonies in the West Indies that were producing sugar. And when you're processing sugar, you end up with a whole lot of molasses as a byproduct. And they were taking that molasses and making rum out of it. So by doing that, it was a way to get more mileage out of their raw material and create yet another saleable product to people. And then the other kind of interesting thing is that around 1770 in New England, there were about 159 rum distilleries there as well. Whoa. So it was, a it was readily available. So how did they get the rum out into the backwoods, the fur traders? Because they were pretty isolated and had some pretty hard areas to get through like waterfalls and such, right? Right, yeah. So the fur traders were typically traveling by canoe and they would pack um, their trade goods in these big canvas wrapped 90 pound bales. Well, you can't put, <laughs> you can't put rum in a, in a canvas fur no. bale. So they were bringing nine gallon casks of that rum and that was about 90 pounds. And when they would get there, where they were going, they would then go ahead and dilute that rum so that it would, it would go a little farther. And depending on the Native American group that they were working with, that would determine how much that rum was diluted down. For groups of Native Americans who they had been trading alcohol with in the past, it was typically a stronger product that those groups were getting. Hmm. So why would Native Americans even want this stuff? So they were looking for this because as a part of um, trade process, it was a hospitality thing. So sometimes the fur traders weren't necessarily trading it. They were using it as a gift to start the trading process. Some of the Native Americans saw it as a status symbol. And when the fur traders were gone, they in turn were using the rum that they had traded for as a way to give hospitality to people. And some of them saw it as a powerful thing because, of course, if you drink enough of it, it can intoxicate you. So they saw that. And the other thing really has to do with the fact that it's consumable. So a lot of the trade products that the Native Americans were trading for, blankets, armbands, jewelry, axe heads, um, those things were things that would last a long time. And so once they had enough of them, unless they were going to trade them on to another group, um, they were looking for something else. And for a lot of them, um, rum was something that they, they wanted. So now I know that it is illegal to distill um, your own stuff at home, but yes. if folks would like to try rum or another kind of liquor, whiskey, where could they go to get it? 
So you can get just kind of your everyday Captain Morgan stuff, of course, at your local grocery store. If you're looking for a little bit of a more unique experience, 18th Amendment is a distillery down in downtown Muskegon. There's also Coppercraft Distillery in Holland, as well as the New Holland Brewing Company also is distilling spirits and have been for a few years. So there are some really cool local options where you can go to try some really unique things. So we're gonna move ahead a little bit in this timeline to our settler's cabin. This is the 1830s and we're gonna talk a little beer. Gwen, why were the settlers drinking so much to begin with? Well, back in the 1830s, especially when folks were just settling into the side of the state, they didn't have a Brita filter. They didn't have a good way of filtering out any kind of water or making it safe to drink. So one of the ways they would make it safe to drink was by making beer. And beer was pretty easy to make at home and they almost always had enough ingredients for the beer. So it was pretty easy to make and it was easily accessible. What is kind of the typical process in making beer? How do you how do you do that? Yeah, so we actually experimented last year with it, um, and I have some here today. And it's a pretty easy process. Really, what it is is you're boiling water um, with some sugar, uh, hops, um, and then also some yeast and then some kind of wheat bran or barley. And so that's what's gonna give it its taste and kind of start that fermentation, the yeast and the sugar. That's how they would make it. And their beer back then, they would make it, let it sit overnight, and then they would drink it the next day. It's not like the beer we have today where it sits for quite a while brewing before you drink it. So it's a little bit different and it definitely tastes um, less alcoholic than the beers you would think of now. Awesome. So what about wine? Were they making wine too or was it pretty much just beer? They were making wine. Um, they would actually make mead and a mead is a honey water and yeast at its simplest um, and it's takes a little bit longer than beer to make, but they also made um, methelgen, which is a type of spiced or flavored mead. So there have been some accounts written down in Michigan during this time period where they would make that. Awesome, so you know, if you're again adventurous and you wanna try something different, Montague here in town has Bardic Wells Meadery. And that's a place where you can go and you can, you can sample and buy traditional meads. They also have some more modern products. So that's really cool. And if you're looking for a good beer, here in um, Whitehall is Fetch Brewing Company. And in the West Michigan area, there are a number of breweries that you can go, you can try to your heart's content to find the one that you like the best. Um, so even still today, you can get some pretty unique local products. So Wendy, which sites are we going to talk about next? Next, we're going to talk about the Civil War and the logging shanty. And we're going to be talking about whiskey here. Ooh, so how prevalent was whiskey in these two time periods? So whiskey was pretty prevalent. Um, what had happened is after the Revolutionary War, um, it was harder for the rum distillers to get really cheap molasses. And so you see a really, really deep decline in the rum distillation, but you see a really sharp increase in whiskey. And that's because you had a lot of farmers and they were growing a lot of grain. And if you grow more grain than you can eat, what do you do with it? Hmm. One of the options is to turn it into whiskey and you can store it that way. And it will, it will last, um, depending, I guess. <laughs> um, so even George Washington had a whiskey distillery. Really? Yeah, and it, it was not a small one. 
Um, so you get the whiskey coming to um, popularity then. So in all the movies I've seen and TV shows, they always use alcohol as like their anesthesia. Did they really do that in the Civil War? So I'm sure that there were times um, when supplies of traditional anesthesias were low that they might have done that. But we're pretty sure that they didn't do that as much as Hollywood would like us to <laughs> believe that they did. It's probably not nearly as dramatic, but they they just they had those other things available, um, so they didn't need it. One way they did use the alcohol, though, is they would often give patients a shot of whiskey because they thought it was a stimulant, even though we know now that it's a depressant. Oh. So they would give it to the soldiers to raise their heart rate, essentially before doing um, some kind of a procedure on them. Yikes. Yeah, yeah yikes. <laughs> And then the other reason that the soldiers would get it is has to do with that stimulating effect they thought the whiskey had. So some of the soldiers would be assigned to fatigue duty, which is like ditch digging or trench digging. And so they would be doing that and they would get like a shot of whiskey a day if that was the type of work they were assigned to. If other soldiers wanted to get whiskey to drink, uh, they were on their own. So that meant they either had to kind of pilfer some from civilians in the area where they were staying they might go and find um, kind of what we would consider a bar that was willing to sell to them. Those, they were called grog shops in this time often. Um, and so they would get it that way. But there were kind of rules against having alcohol sometimes, so some of them may have gotten in trouble a little bit. Hmm. So what about the logging era? Because I thought they couldn't have alcohol, <laughs> so why are we talking about them? Right, so just like during the Civil War, there's always a few rule breakers. So I'm sure that some people probably snuck some into camp. If they got caught, however, they probably did get in trouble. Yeah. The main time that they were consuming their alcohol was after payday. Oh. Um, yeah, so the loggers, they were logging starting from October and then into the spring. And they actually wouldn't usually get paid until the end of the season in the spring. And then they would take that money and they would go into these lumber towns like Muskegon and Saginaw. And those lumber towns had kind of what we would call quote unquote entertainment districts. So they consisted of bars, body houses, what? operas and playhouses. Um, so there was a lot of potential for those loggers to get into trouble and to lose a big chunk of their paycheck. And, you know, drinking whiskey was one of those ways. Sounds like they had a pretty wild time back in the day. <laughs> I think they very much did. So one last question, what is really the difference between whiskey, scotch, and bourbon? Because I have no idea. Yeah, so some of it is based on location, some of it is based on ingredients. So typically, scotch is a whiskey that's manufactured in Scotland. So if you were in Scotland and you asked for a whiskey, you would most likely get scotch. But if you go over to Ireland, it gets a little tricky. If you ask for a whiskey in Ireland, you're more likely to get Irish whiskey. <laughs> Oh, oh, so there isn't a, like a flavor difference. It's um, just location? I think it has to do more with location. You're going to have some different flavors based sure. off of the different recipes in the different areas. Um, and then on top of that, we have to throw in bourbon to the mix. And a lot of people think that bourbon has to be made in Kentucky, and that's what makes it bourbon. Uh, but indeed, it is not. Bourbon is controlled by the ingredients and the proofs at which it's distilled in barrel. So generally speaking, the rule for bourbon is it has to be at least 51% corn. So this is a corn alcohol. 
The balance can be made up of malted barley and either rye or wheat typically, and it needs to be distilled at 160 proof or less, and then barreled at about 125 or less. And then it also has to be aged in a new charred oak barrel. Ooh, fancy. Very fancy. So what happens when it's aging is that alcohol goes in and out of the barrel sides, and the charred uh, barrel gives it its color and it contributes to its flavor varieties. And even though we think it's kind of wasteful to use the barrel once, a lot of our local breweries are, are using those in their beer barrel bourbon, bourbon barrel beers. There we go. <laughs> that is a tongue twister, let me tell yes, you. Yes, it is. That's kind of our civil war and logging. So we're gonna move ahead to our 1900 farmhouse. So Gwen, what on earth is a cordial and why would I want to drink yes, one? Yes, well a cordial and why you would want one, um, what they are is a liquor or a pleasant tasting medicine. Today we are most familiar with those that uh, find their way to the typical bar. Campery is one example. How do you go about making a cordial? Is, is this something that it's legal for me to make at home? I'm not distilling anything if I make a cordial. Oh yeah, you can totally make one. They all pretty much start the same way. They start with a liquor base, such as whiskey, brandy, or rum. Sugar is then added along with herbs, fruit, spices, or a combination of those. Typically, these resulting cordials are considered a dessert item or an after-dinner uh, digestive. However, in the past, they also were used as cough syrup or medicines of other types. We found in cookbooks that we have here uh, different kinds of cordials that were used for illnesses, like an elderberry cordial that was used if you had a cough. So now we're getting kind of to the beginning of the end here after 1900. In 1916, Michigan citizens voted to prohibit the sale or manufacture of intoxicating beverages. Just so you know, that's a two full years before the 18th Amendment was ratified in 1918 by Congress. Oh, Michigan, always ahead of the time. Always ahead of the time. So this kind of initiated what they called the noble experiment where people were trying to kind of legislate morality by not selling these intoxicating things. Things. But to go with that, they had to kind of define what made an intoxicating liquor because we just said alcohol can be medicine, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so that's where the Volstead Act comes in. It defines what was an intoxicating liquor and it also kind of defined the penalties for producing it. So are there any consequences that happened in Michigan during this prohibition? Yeah, so one of the first ones and the big ones is prior to prohibition, Michigan had like like now, a lot of little local distilleries and breweries um, all over the state, and a lot of those were not able to survive prohibition. The other thing is, is that it brought out people's entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> so as these um, legitimate organizations are going out of business, a lot of, um, shall we say, quote-unquote, independent establishments um, of <laughs> very questionable legality started popping up in kind of out-of-the-way places. Like here in Muskegon, a lot of them showed up in the River Flats area. And I have a feeling we know that because some of them got busted. <laughs> so that's those are kind of some of the big ones. And then the other thing that happened is because Michigan is surrounded by water... And because we are so close to Canada, and Canada did not have prohibition, smuggling became a thing. We were smugglers in the prohibition? <laughs> a lot of Michiganders were smugglers. Oh no! Remember I talked about being an entrepreneur, so some of these people were going over to Canada, getting spirits, and smuggling them back across the lake. Oh, Canada. 
Yes. And uh, <laughs> one of the more interesting bits about this whole smuggling thing is that powerboats and powerboating and racing powerboats had kind of come into fashion in the 1920s. Hmm. And so a lot of the rum runners and the law enforcement officers were looking to Michigan boat builders to get the next fastest boat. And they got in kind of an arms race with each huh. other, um, buying up these Michigan-made boats like um, Chris Craft boats and things like that. Those are some crazy facts that we've just gone through. <laughs> some crazy facts. Yeah, by 1933, the Prohibition experiment was over. And of course, in true leadership fashion, April 10, Michigan was the first state to ratify the 21st Amendment. Again, always ahead of its time. <laughs> yep. It wasn't officially repealed until December 5th, of course. But yeah, so did you have a fun little jaunt down the trail looking at our buildings and sites a little bit differently? Yes, it was wonderful. I think it's an interesting piece that will definitely bring to our interpretation every day yeah and so you know folks go out there be responsible explore the uh, local distilling and brewing landscape and enjoy your time here in West Michigan cheers, cheers.